This audio recording is from First Wednesday, Love in the Time of ISIS. We experienced a few technical difficulties, and as a result, a few minutes of Jeremy Courtney's presentation are missing. Please join us for our next First Wednesday on February 4th, 2015. Tonight, what you can expect, there's going to be a few things. Uh, first of all, Jeremy's going to come. He's the executive director of Preemptive Love Coalition. He's the author of the book, Preemptive Love, which uh, you're going to be able to take a look at tonight. Uh, he's going to speak to us for about 30 minutes. I'm going to introduce him here in a minute. Um, and then after that, we're going to have a time of Q&A. Now, just to frame the evening, we're going to be talking about um, asking really the question, how do we love our neighbors when our neighbors are global neighbors? And Jeremy really is, and preemptive love is a model that we want to put forward and we want to learn from. So feel free to ask an array of questions on how you engage globally. Um, but primarily we may address things more related to the Middle East, but don't feel like it has to be limited to that, just as long as you know that Chris, me, Jeremy, while we're on the panel, we may say we don't know. So we'll have a time for text-in questions later after the, after the talk, and then you'll be able to text-in questions, and Jeremy will answer those. Um, and speaking of questions, Chris, you have a question for us to discuss around tables? Sounds good. Just to get you guys talking, we'll start with this. Around your tables or with some people around you in a row. Uh, here's one thing, just so you can get used to talking. Would you just look at the people around your table? Be awkward right now. Look at the people around your table and just say your name on three. Just your first name. Ready? One, two, three. Very good. Okay, wait. You're just supposed to say your name. Good. Okay, so everybody's comfortable talking with the people. You've all introduced yourself. Jump in on this question, okay? So we're going to talk, Jeremy's talking specifically about Iraq and we're gonna, and, and the Middle East in that area. But if, as you think of issues, global issues, and there's a lot of global issues in the world today. If you open up your web browser, you go to CNN or BBC.com or whatever it is, maybe even Fox News, wherever you're going to go, you go there, there's going to be tons of global issues around. What global issue most concerns you? So if you had to pick one issue globally, something going on around the world that you would say, that's the most concerning to me today. Which one would it be? Okay? You got to pick one. Everybody's got to talk, and you have one minute. Ready? Go. Okay, let's draw our discussions to a close. So to, before I introduce Jeremy, which we decided, I decided earlier this morning, that I had a talk planned. I said, this is a blog post. We want to get Jeremy up there quicker. But still, I got to like kind of turn an introduction into a talk a little bit. So uh, show of hands, who has read or owns a copy of Jeremy's book? Okay, good handful. Who's seen a news clip? Uh, the TED Talk. The Q Talk. All right, cool. That'll help us gauge... Uh, how much of the backstory we need to fill in. Um, one of the issues of concern, why we thought this would be an important night, is that we often hear about intense global issues, and we don't know what to do with them. Um, for instance, if we can show the pictures up here, across our screens, often on Facebook or Twitter, we will see pictures of things happening in with ISIS? What do we do with situations like ISIS and in Iraq? What do you do with big questions like Ebola? 
Where does our heart go? Where do our minds go? When you hear about these um, sex trafficking and all of these big things, there is a tendency to drift one of two directions that I don't think either one is totally healthy. One is apathy. It is, it is very common in our world today to be apathetic about global things, especially with the popular movement of localism and local coffee and local this and local that. I am the biggest champion in the world for those things. I really believe in it. But our local can't stop us from being good global neighbors. The shirts on our back were made in places like Malaysia and Pakistan in China, and you are connected through the three ITs of international travel and information technology and international trade, that you live in a global world. And so therefore, Jesus' precious words about the great commandment apply in a global way. His words in Matthew 22, 37-40, which say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. If you're going to take love seriously in a globally interconnected world, then we have to view love as a global thing. Because our God is a global God. His redemptive purposes are to extend the blessing to all nations through Christ. He cares about all nations. All nations will be with Jesus eternally. There will be people from all nations who won't lose their their background, but in their very tribe and tongue and culture will be with him and will love him. Our God's a global God. Our neighbors are global neighbors. I mentioned those three ITs of international travel and international trade. And uh, what was the other IT? Information technology. Man, I got a short-term memory. But also think about this, the specific context that we are in, in the Phoenix metro area. You may not know this, but Arizona State University has one of the highest populations of international students in the country. The highest uh, from from, uh, places like Saudi Arabia. We have a number of, of students from China and from all over the world These are our neighbors. Furthermore, we have one of the highest refugee populations. Some say 60,000 refugees, but people say there are a lot more because they get settled in places like uh, like Minnesota, which is really cold. And they say, no, let's just go to Arizona. So a lot of people come here. A third of all people in our state speak Spanish, maybe even more than that. And so to say that the... If we want to take the command to love our neighbors seriously, it is to have global concern for our global neighbors. But the question that we ask, the question that uh, my friend Stephen Garber brings up, this quote from his book, uh, Visions of Vocation, which I think is important, it says, we know in the deepest places how hard it is to keep our eyes open to the complexity of the broken world around us to keep feeling the pains of the world, that it is not the way it is supposed to be, knowing the difficulty, choosing to engage it rather than being numbed by it. How do we know the world and still know it deeply, not naively, but deeply, and still engage in it and love it? 
And over the years, I've had no better mentor um, than my friend Jeremy, who's going to speak to you tonight. Uh, there are few people that I can just say that I have learned from, that I put the, my stamp on, that I, I, I've, I have uh, a significant amount of respect for, who has shaped me, shaped my family. And frankly, for those of you who are part of redemption, if I've influenced you in any way, a lot of it's probably coming from him. If it's positive, if it's negative, it's actually coming from Benjamin Jensen. We share an office. But so I want you to, so tonight, uh, actually, Benjamin, he's got a lot of good stuff too. (laughs) Uh, So tonight, I want you to lean in a little bit and listen. And uh, I implore you to listen to my friend Jeremy because he's got some important things to say. Would you go ahead and give him a hand as he comes up? Thank you, guys. Put a clock out here for us. How are you? How was work today? Good. <laughs> Heard a, something over there. Um, well, we'll get to ISIS, and we'll get to our Muslim neighbors here, and we'll get to Iraq. But, but before we get there, I want to kind of lay a little bit of a backstory that, that I don't tell often, a story that you can't necessarily find quite as easily uh, online, and something I think in terms of starting as a starting point might have a little bit more relevance to you here today before we get to some of the global issues that, that also concern us around the world. I was born at a young age, and um, well, I'll start a little bit after that. I, when I was in my early 20s, I was walking down the hall of my seminary one day, deeply concerned about the gospel, deeply concerned about all the different peoples and nations and ethnicities around the world that didn't know Jesus, some of whom were in my city. And on my way to the chapel there in seminary, I started hearing chatter in the hallway. We were on our way to hear this chapel talk, something probably very similar to what we're doing tonight. And on the way, I started hearing this chatter about an airplane that had flown into some building in New York. And then before I had made it much further down the stairs, the story started changing even further, and there was more talk and more stories and more rumors and more violence and more crashes. And by the time we actually made it to the chapel, we started hearing about the horrific events that had unfolded on September 11th. And in the hours that ensued, school was canceled, and we all went to coffee shops or back to our homes and sat fixated on the television for the rest of the day for the rest of the week, for the rest of the month. And everywhere we went, everywhere we turned, there seemed to be one prevailing question. Who are Muslims? What do they want from us? Why are they so angry with us? Why are they so upset? What have we ever done wrong to them? Why do they hate our way of life? Why do they hate our freedoms? I was a part of a small group inside of a larger church, the larger church, a couple thousand people, the small group, about 20. And that group of us of about 20, just days prior to 9-11, we had decided we want to be people who are going to face toward the Muslim world and choose to be their friends. We are going to refuse to have enemies in the Muslim world. And then 9-11 happened. And we were at this fork in the road, ostensibly, we were going to be with everyone else having to decide, are we against Muslims or are we for Muslims? But 
in some very real sense, we had already made that decision. And so we weren't quite at the same place that many of our neighbors were. We had already at least placed a foot in the direction of our Muslim neighbor. And we weren't left trying to strictly pull ourselves out of fear and decide if we were still going to follow Jesus to those whom he so loved. And so we continued on our journey in spite of 9-11, indeed swimming upstream against 9-11 toward Muslim friends, both in our city, in our state, and around the world. That ultimately led that group of 20-some people in that small group there in a central Texas town. It led us to uproot our lives, to get on airplanes together, and to fly over 20-some people and plant our lives in the Middle East to live among Muslims as a community, as a church even. And the idea, the vision, our hope was that we back in Texas would be a church. We would form as a church. We would worship and and move and commune together as the church. And then we would uproot ourselves as a planted church and we would move across the ocean and plant ourselves down in new soil. And we would live in that foreign soil as the church until somehow up from that soil came new life and new fruit, and we spawned fruit and seed that gave life to new churches in that area. And and the fruit, as we know, sometimes requires that a seed would fall off and fall into the ground in order for it to give new life. And, And so we were ready to face whatever might happen in this Muslim land. We were still the people of 9-11 in many ways. We were still people who had been socialized and and had experienced those things, and so we still largely lived from a place of fear at times. We still lived in the shadows in many ways. We still lived with our fists up, looking for a fight. And and one of the ways that that started to manifest itself and play out in my life went a little bit like this. I would wake up every morning in this foreign land. I'd grab my dictionary and my journal pack it in my shoulder satchel, and head off down to the coffee shop. Now, it's not that common for a 25-year-old dad, young married guy in the Middle East to not have a job. It's not that common to go sit in a coffee shop for eight hours a day and, and not work. And so people suspected me, rightly, it turns out, that I wasn't telling the truth when I told them I was there to start businesses. They were kind of on to me, even though I wasn't necessarily fully on to myself yet at that point. And, and I would sit in these coffee shops, and I would spread out my journal in front of me, and the local newspaper, and the dictionary, and maybe a, a Bible in the local language, and I would start working word by word by word. And maybe some old guy, 70 years old, retired, he had a proper reason to sit in the coffee shop all day. He would saddle up beside me and grab a cup of tea and a you know, a plate of baklava. And, and I've already decided I have to tell this guy about Jesus before he ever, you know, sits down. And so I try to figure out some awkward way to insinuate myself into this older man's life. And, you know, maybe a 25-year-old guy is on his lunch break and he, he comes up beside me on the other table an hour later. And, you know, maybe a family with a kid comes in for an after-school snack and, and they come over two tables away about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and all, all these people circle, circulate in and out of my life. I'm trying to figure out ways to like get in there, kind of like weasel my way at their table so I can tell them about Jesus. 
And here's how some of these conversations went. Not all of them by any means, but some of these conversations went a little bit like this. Hey, you're American. Welcome to our neighborhood. I would say, hi, hi, yeah, welcome to me, or hi, or, you know, my language is bad, I'm sorry, but hi. And, and they would say, oh, are you, are, are you American? American, good, you know, that's great. And I said, yeah, I'm American. And they would say, are you, are you Christian? Christian is okay, good. And I said, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. And they would say, that's so great, we're the same. I'm just like you. I am Muslim, you are Christian, same, same, that's awesome, great, good job. In my response to this guy, I really could have gone one of two ways, day after day after day. I could have said, you're right. We are the same. We've both acknowledged that there's something greater and bigger and better than us, and we're both, as desperately as we can, trying to be faithful to the creator God of the world. We are the same. God bless you. Let's have some tea. That's not what I did. Instead, I would approach guys like this, more like this, whoa, whoa, you're a Muslim. I, I'm a Christian. Say it with me. Christian. We're not the same. Don't, don't try and put us in the same boat. And, and sometimes my Muslim friends would say, well, I don't get it. I mean, you, you worship God, right? And I'd say, yeah, I, I worship God, but, but you worship like a, a different God. I mean, my God's name is God. And, and your God's name is Allah. And that's like totally different. And, and sometimes, very often, my Muslim friends would say something to the effect of, well, I'm confused. You worship the one God, right? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to tell you, man. I worship the one God. Like the God who created the heavens and the earth and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian and I work. That's okay. Oh, all right, I see what you're doing. You got me there. But but what I'm trying to say is, I am a follower of Jesus. Yeah, me too. We are followers of Jesus. Muslims, okay, good, good. No, no, what I'm saying is I'm like a real follower of Jesus. What you're, tr you're trying to trick me here because, like, that's not fair. What I'm saying is Jesus is different than your Jesus. Because you, let's all say it together, your Jesus is just a prophet. What I'm trying to say to you, Muslim friend, is is Jesus is like, Jesus is God. This is what I'm trying to say to you. You're not listening. You don't understand. And so on and so on it would go. I, I would say, no, what I'm saying is I, I believe Jesus died on the cross. And maybe every once in a while a Muslim would say, yeah, we believe Jesus died on the cross too. It's actually in the Quran where a couple of times Jesus says, blessing of God be upon me the day I was born and the day I died and the day I was risen up to God. And, and so, yeah, we believe that Jesus died. I know there's Muslims over here who, who don't believe that Jesus died, but we actually do believe that Jesus died. Or I believe that Jesus died. And so I'd have to concede that point. Fine, fine, you believe that Jesus died on the cross. But, but what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus died on the cross divinely, as the very stuff of God. And then every once in a while, a savvy Muslim might say something like, well, it's interesting because there is this verse in the Quran where it says that Jesus is the word of God. Now, I don't understand all that that means. We don't talk about Jesus a ton in my mosque, but, but I know that if he's the word of God, there is some sense in which he is what's on God's heart. 
The Word of God is something that has come out of God into the world. So I don't know if we should call that God stuff, or I don't know what we should call it, but what I'm trying to say, Jeremy, is I think we're kind of the same. And so day after day, conversation after conversation, had my fists up. And I would go into this coffee shop, and I would go into these electric shops, and I would go into the local newspaper stand, and everywhere I went, I was looking for a fight. People would say, we're the same. And I would throw a right hook and say, no, we're not. Don't try and make us the same. And and after doing this for a number of years, after trying to be this faithful, evangelical missionary who told the Muslims about Jesus, I was an utter failure in many, many ways. I was losing friends. I wasn't influencing anyone. And out of Grave frustration one day at a conference with a bunch of other people who were kind of in my same boat. I found myself face down on the floor in prayer, crying out to God saying, where are you? Where are you in this? Where are you in this work that we're trying to do? You seem nowhere to be found. 365 days a year, hour after hour, we are faithfully going out and telling people about Jesus and No one is responding. What's wrong with you, God? And and with my face to the ground, maybe the one time in my life that I would say, I think I heard God. I think God said to me in that moment, it's because you don't love them, Jeremy. You don't love Muhammad as a Muslim. You love Muhammad, the Muslim that you can make into a Christian. You love being right. You love arguing with people. You love all the people back home thinking that you're doing a good job for Jesus out here in the middle of nowhere. But you don't love Muhammad as a Muslim, period. End of story. And in that moment when I think it's fair to say God spoke to me, you don't love them, I kind of had this this vision of myself or some sort of of out-of-body understanding or vision of what was going on in me and in the world. And it was like I was standing outside of myself, watching myself, and I I saw my fists up for the first time. I didn't know I was living like that. I, I thought I was being a faithful follower of Jesus. I actually thought I was a servant. But instead, I, I saw my fists up. And, and when I'm watching myself have this prayer conversation with God, I see God say to me, you don't love them. And, and as he spoke, you don't love them into my life, it was like my fist just came down. My body loosened up and my arms opened wide. Now in the real world, I'm still face down laying on the ground in prayer. And, and I stood up from that prayer in the real world and I was an utterly changed person. We talk about sanctification as this sort of long life process by which we become holy. And I believe in that. This was not that. This was an instantaneous Holy Spirit moment spoken into my life that changed me in an instant. The ice of my heart melted and I was immediately soft and responsive to my Muslim neighbors in a way that was completely unknown to me for nearly three years prior to that point living in this neighborhood. I stood up and my arms were just open. Not, not in worship necessarily, but open and like just looking for someone to give a hug to. 
Like, not looking for a fight. And from that moment on, in 2006, I have never brought my fists up again to a Muslim the way that I once had. My whole thinking was transformed in that moment. Now, just within just a few days after having this, this radical spiritual moment of prayer, this, this revelatory thing spoken into my heart that transformed me, just days after this, my wife and I and our one-year-old daughter and a couple of friends ended up leaving our home in that place and moving into Iraq. Iraq at that time was totally embroiled in a civil war. Kurds were just emerging from decades of dictatorship, oppressed under Saddam Hussein. The Sunnis, who had ruled the country for decades, were now ostracized and pushed to the margins of society. The Shia, who had been oppressed by Saddam Hussein for so long, were now ruling the country. But as a less educated class, angry, upset, rightfully full of a sense of injustice for all the decades that they had suffered under Saddam Hussein. And so the whole place was just a tinderbox, not waiting to explode, but actually exploding in many places all around us. Huge bloodletting across the country, retributive violence from Sunnis to Shia and Shia back to Sunni. Morgues were filling up with young men with drill holes through their skulls and grotesque torture marks across their chests as neighborhood militias, gangs in our language here, continued to kill one another left and right. So we move into this scene and into this scenario, not exactly into the most violent of towns or violent of neighborhoods, but, but in a broader setting where violence engulfed us in a lot of ways. And I'm in Iraq, and I'm there largely because I've heard the cries of the Iraqi people. We've been reading the news, we've been watching the things that are coming out of Iraq, and we actually had a friend living in Iraq who made known to us some of the suffering of the people. As we heard their stories, we just sensed deeply within our spirits that it would be prudent, actually. It would be God-honoring, it would be good for us to put our lives on the line for the people of Iraq and try to bring some sense of healing and beauty back to their lives. And so we move our family into this setting and we're there trying to help widows and orphans across a couple of different villages there. And I take my laptop day after day and I go into this hotel and open up my laptop and start working away on proposals, asking money, asking for anyone to help us get supplies and services to those who have been orphaned or widowed by the violence across Iraq. And so I'm, I'm doing my job, day in and day out, sitting in some foreign hotel lobby. And one day the chai guy in that cafe set a cup of tea on my table. I'd ordered it, and he brought it over. And, and as he set my tea down, he kind of just kicked the dust and, and just kind of hovered over my shoulder for a minute longer than he typically would have. And he finally got up the nerve to say, you know, Jeremy, you've been coming to this hotel for a while now. Could I ask you a favor? We're, we're friends, right? And I was like, yeah, man, sure. And he said, well, I've got this cousin. He's like 25-year-old guy like you and me. And he's got this little girl. And, and she's about this big now, but, but when she was born, she was born with this huge hole between the chambers of her heart. And as a result of this huge hole in her heart, the blood doesn't go where it's supposed to go, and so her body doesn't get the oxygen that it's supposed to get. And she lives constantly tired, 
Her lips are blue. Her skin color's not right. And there's not a hospital or a doctor in the entire country that can save her life. Because all the smart people left a number of years ago. And she's going to die. She doesn't get the surgery that she needs. Could you help us? And I said, man, I, I don't know anything about that. I, I'm just here doing my paperwork, and I'm trying to help these kids over here and trying to help these widows start some businesses, but I'm a good guy, I, I promise. I'm helping people, but I don't really know anything about this heart surgery thing. I mean, it, it sounds complicated. If there's no hospital here in Iraq, I don't know what I could do. And, and if it requires taking her outside of Iraq, I don't know what I could do. So I don't really think I'm your guy. I'm really sorry. And, and through a lot of humility and a really meaningful conversation that you can read more about in the book, he got me to see that I was largely viewing the world through the lens of failure. What if I fail? What if I were to take a risk on this family and not come through for them? What if I were to say yes, take the file, and not come through? What would they think of me? What would they think of America Another American come promising the moon and delivering absolutely nothing. What would they think of Jesus? What would they think of Christianity? What if I fail? And he helped turn that fear on its ear a little bit and said, what if you succeed, man? She's already dead to us. I mean, as crass as that is, we have no hope. But with you, you actually have resources. Just, just call the president. That's what we do. My cousin, everyone's cousin knows the president in Iraq. Just, just call Obama, no, Bush at this time. Just call Bush and, and, and just see if he can get us a heart surgery. I walk into this woman's office and, and she shows me on her desk this stack of medical reports this high of children who are waiting in line for these life-saving heart surgeries. Now she was barely an organization. No sign on the front door. This was her living room that she was working out of. And somehow, day after day, word was getting around that there were a couple of people who were trying to help kids who had these life-threatening heart defects. And so I put my file on top and asked her what she needed. And she said, we need money. I mean, we have some of the doctors in place to help. We have some connections in this country and that. But there's just never enough money to help all these kids. I walked out of the office and went back to my house and sat down with my wife and said, what, what are we going to do for this family? We, we found a solution. We, we found the logistical stream that she needs to get in to have her life saved, but, but she needs money. And so we agreed as a family that we were going to chip in a little money to see what we could do to help save her life. A couple days later, I'm back at the hotel doing my routine, back on the laptop, and my phone rings. Some stranger, I have no idea who he is or how he got my number. Hello, Mr. Jeremy. My name is Muhammad, and I heard from a friend, from a friend, from a cousin, from his uncle, from the aunt of the girl that you helped, that you help children who have heart problems. Well, I have a child who has a heart problem. Can you help me? A couple days later, my phone rings again. A couple days later, my phone rings again. A couple days after that, someone shows up at my front door knocking on my personal home. Hello, my baby is here. 
I make Iraqis sound like the happiest people in the world. And that, <laughs> I love that about me. <laughs> you know, he tells me a story about how the taxi driver had dropped me off here at my home a couple of weeks ago, and the taxi driver remembered me, the bald American guy who helps kids with heart problems, when he was driving this dude on the other side of the city to his home and said, I know a guy, let's take a detour, and brings him to my home. And so before we know it, my friend over here has a stack of kids waiting in line for heart surgery, and then on my desk, in my living room, these files are stacking up, and we have our own stack of kids who are waiting in line for these life-saving heart surgeries. And so Jessica and I have this conversation, what is God trying to tell us here in this moment? We, we came to do this one thing. We thought we were these one kind of people. We, we had this professional vision for our life that went this direction, and yet here we are in over our heads with suffering, dying children who, incidentally, can actually be helped. So we drained our bank account, took everything we had, put it into the center of the table, and said, let's go all in with this. And one month led to another, and a couple of kids led to a couple more kids, and after about three years, we had helped save the lives of 63 children. Now, in those early days, I, I was trying to get my mind around, my wife was trying to get her mind around, what does it mean to live well here in Iraq? Some days it was just about surviving. Some days it was just, and I don't even necessarily mean that in the existential sense, like that that we had bombs going off around us, though we did have a little bit of that. It was more about emotionally surviving, spiritually surviving. I mean, some days we said just to be awake, dressed, in your right mind, that's a, that's a success for the day, you know? Just get up and get dressed, that check, you know? But we, we were asking these questions, and, and some of the early guides in our life in Iraq were, were some of the military friends that we had made over the first couple of days and the first couple of weeks and months. And some of these men and women in uniform, we started working with very closely to help rebuild neighborhoods around us. We worked with them to help provide services to the orphans and widows who were not orphaned or widowed by American violence, but who were orphaned and widowed from Saddam's violence. And in our time with these men and women in uniform, whom we really grew to love, we, we became a little bit a part of their culture, not having shared their experiences, but be cozying up alongside them and hearing how they viewed the world and how they processed their own pain and their own suffering and their own fears. Listening to their maxims and their mottos as to how one might survive in a place like Iraq. And they told us things. Jeremy, if you want to survive, here's what we do. We shoot first and ask questions later. Which is not to say that every person in uniform that I spent time with actually shot first and asked questions later. But, but they had these pithy things that they said to help them make it through the day. Some of them said things like, when discussing how we should discern between a good guy and a bad guy, shoot them all. Let God sort it out. Or if they were trying to be particularly irreverent, shoot them all. Let Allah sort it out. They said things like, it's better to be judged by 12 than to be carried by 6. And this, Jeremy, is how you survive in Iraq. And I understood it. It resonated. I got it. I know how you get 
to that place. It wasn't exactly how I was raised. My, my father wasn't in the service. My grandfather was, but it was removed enough from us that we didn't talk a lot about it. It wasn't an expectation on any of the other boys or on me and the grandchildren. And so we were a little bit removed from some of that in my family. And I, re- I recognize how generationally you become a different kind of person, depending on how you're raised. And so that's just not how I was raised. I was actually raised with verses constantly in front of my eyes that said things like, we should love our neighbor as ourselves." I-, I was raised on verses from the Sermon on the Mount that said that God causes his good rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous the same. I was raised on verses from the Roman road in Romans 5 that reminded me that God, while we were his enemies, in Christ died for us. And, and so I had a hard time going all the way in with my men and women friends in uniforms who used these maxims and these mottos and these pithy jokes to make it through the day. And we started asking questions as a community. Can we live like that? Or, or might we decide that we want to be the people who try to love first and ask questions later? Maybe when trying to discern between good guy and bad guy, maybe when trying to decide if we're going to provide a heart surgery to this kid or not this kid because his dad is a known terrorist, maybe we'll just decide to be the community who loves them all. Let God sort it out. Maybe the greatest, highest, best calling in life is not to avoid being carried by six in a casket to your grave. Maybe there's something higher than trying to dodge death. So we'd been doing this for three years, loving as best we knew how, friend and foe alike. Saving the lives of some who were very much against us. Swimming very much upstream at times from the popular current that was surrounding us. Earning for ourselves at times fatwas that called for our punishment and death. Getting our case argued on the floor of parliament in Baghdad because we were trying to broker relationships between enemies. And having done this then for a couple of years, we took stock of everything that we were doing. We took stock of everything that we had accomplished. And it was kind of impressive. 63 children's lives had been saved. Maybe half a million dollars had been spent and raised from friends like you. And it felt good. It felt like that guy walking down the beach who saw the starfish and said, it makes a difference to this one, and throws it back in the ocean. But sadly... My chai guy barista friend, three years on from all of our efforts, he was still right. Three years on, there's not a hospital or a doctor in all of Iraq that can save her life. Mr. Jeremy, you're an American. Can you help? Well, we have helped. We've helped 63 kids. Yeah, but there's still not a doctor or a hospital in all of Iraq that can save her life. Can you help? And so we started reevaluating everything that we'd been doing, and we decided this isn't working. We're, we're not actually making an impact on Iraq. We're helping Muhammad's family and Aisha's daughter. And, but what we need is to stop exporting Iraq's problems and making them someone else's problem. And we need to start importing solutions so that we create local solutions to these local problems. 
And so we went on a nationwide search for a surgeon who would brave the bombs and bullets and join us in places like Baghdad and Fallujah and Tikrit and Basra and the Shia holy city of Najaf and would help us come alongside Iraqi nurses and Iraqi doctors and train them, put the skills in their hands that they needed to save these kids' lives for decades and decades and decades to come. Rather than settling for the quick fix of throwing starfish back into the sea, we needed to be willing to go for the long 30, 40 year journey perhaps of planting redwood seeds in the ground so that they would grow up and to be massive, massive oaks of righteousness, maybe years into the future that we would never get to actually see. And so we actually found a surgeon who was willing to do that, and we invited him into Iraq, and he came in, and we were able to earn the support of the First Lady of Iraq, and the Vice President, and the Prime Minister's office, and with tons of high-level support, we embarked on this groundbreaking, history-making surgery mission, and saved more lives in 10 days than we had saved in an entire year leading up to that point. And, and to boot, we were actually saving the system. We were building into the system. We were training Iraqis so that they would be better at the end of our time. Now, we've been doing that model, bringing in solutions, bringing in experts, and training people locally for the last four years. And a couple of months ago now, in June... We woke up one day to find that we had new neighbors. A group called ISIS. Very much come out from the shadows and had creeped out of the corner of northern Syria again and had come in a big way through a marauding force across north Iraq, northern Iraq, and had come down and had overtaken significant portions of the country. And we started getting phone calls from church friends and church partners and big donors and moms and dads on our team. And we're watching the news. It's looking pretty bad over there. I think it's time to come home. We turned to ourselves and, and had honest conversations as a team and as a family. Do we stick it out? I mean, we use all this heady, heavy rhetoric about preemptive love Does it get us through the night right now? Is preemptive love going to be enough, or should we just be a little more reasonable this time? Pull up and just leave for a little bit. It didn't take much discussion. Most of the team was pretty well confident, convicted even, that we needed to stand our ground and and stay the course. And, And not only keep status quo, but actually to go much, much further in. And so we took hundreds of thousands of dollars, even as ISIS was advancing across the country, and we said, no, we're all in to this. If we're going to go up in flames as an organization, if we're going to go up in flames as a family, we want to do it, saving as many lives as we can in the process. So we put hundreds of thousands of dollars into the system to provide a lot more heart surgeries and basically just said, let's see where this goes. And now, in these months that have intervened, even in the time of ISIS, we've been able to provide an additional 150 heart surgeries since ISIS dared put its head up above ground and say, we're coming for you, one and all. And 150 kids now stand for all the, all the stories you've heard of ISIS's destruction, for all the stories you've heard and the gruesome photos you may have seen about 
beheadings and mass slaughters. They are true. But what you haven't seen is the rows and rows and rows of 150 children whose lives have been saved, taunting ISIS even over these last couple of months. 150 kids from 150 neighborhoods with 150 moms who hang out with 150 other neighbors and 150 dads who go to 150 shops and service thousands and thousands of customers every day. These children stand with love scars on their chest, ambassadors of peace, telling a different story about what happens when neighbors and enemies choose to put their fists down and open their arms wide in love to one another. Now, I want to get into a dialogue as quickly as possible, and so I'm going to, I'm going to give you this question, and then we're going to transition to more of a, a Q&A time. I don't really know what the question is yet, so I'm going to keep talking here for a minute while I think about the question. What questions should we ask, Jim? This is awkward. <laughs> Clearly, I've been riveting for Jim. Um, you know, so here's, here's the question that you're going to ask around your tables. Uh, Sorry, I know this is my job. I just can't think what question we want to ask. All right. Well... The question that you're going to ask around your tables are, what is one skill, ability, or resource, something that you have that you can leverage for the good of another? So go ahead and discuss that, and we'll come back in just a moment, and we'll do some text-in questions. So, all right, everybody. I asked Jim uh, a couple days ago as we were going over this, just kind of last running through what the night was going to look like, and I asked him, he talked about text-in question. I said, Dude, why do you guys do text-in questions? Like, why make it anonymous? Why not let people show their face and ask the questions just in front? And Jim, and, and I knew they had a reason for why you guys did this. And, and Jim, you said, um, I have a very strong conviction about this. And you, and you talked about how much, how much simpler it is when people text their questions in, because they ask shorter questions and all that. And so it's interesting, you said it's simpler. Now I'm looking at the, the instructions up here. So you're going to want to... <laughs> so, Here's, uh, I'm going to ask Jeremy a question, ask Jim a question, give you guys some time to figure out the instructions here. So it goes like this. So uh, text all of life to 411247 and then reply why, for yes I assume, to confirm and then send your question. But make sure you put all of life, does it have to be all caps? Do it to be safe. All of life. It's a double tap the little arrow thing on your iPhone. So, uh, so do that. Be thinking about your questions, anything you want to go with here. Um, but let me ask a question first to you, Jeremy, and then uh, to you, uh, Jim. So for Jeremy, will you just, you kind of, uh, you told us your story from 9-11 up to the last, uh, you know, maybe a month or two ago, and then can you just finish the story? So where are you guys at now? What's, what's been going on? What is, what's preemptive love up to these days? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of that story starts the day that you started your story here earlier tonight. A lot of that story starts with waking up one day and finding that we had new neighbors. Not, not that ISIS themselves in, a, in you know, black flags and, and black masks were, were driving down my street. That's not what I mean to convey. But, but that in nearby towns, these places were now occupied by ISIS. And on our streets then... Many of the people who had once lived in those towns for their entire lives, for generations, 
now had their homes occupied by this terrorist coalition called ISIS. And so these people had been displaced from their homes and were now walking on our streets in July, in June, in July, and in August. And, you know, for we've seen these kinds of things on smaller scale in Iraq over the years. We've been there nearly eight years now. And so we, we've seen these kinds of things come and go, but never on a scale like this. We've never seen so many people so wretchedly displaced so quickly. And, and so our streets were teeming with suffering, persecuted, psychologically broken people. And in years past, we would have just looked at that situation and said, that's, that's not really our thing. We have to stay focused on what we're doing. We're trying to build something here. We're not just trying to respond frivolously to every little need that comes our way because there are many and, and it would be a sucker's game to try and respond to all of them all the time. Stay the course, focus on heart surgery. What has changed in the intervening years to get to this place is that we have set significant systems in place and in motion so that we do not have to keep our hand on the wheel of heart surgery as, as, as uh, you know, like uni, unilaterally or, or, or in a, such a focused way right now that we cannot afford, we don't have any margin to do something else. That's not the case. We've, we've set things in motion. I'm not a heart surgeon, so I don't have to focus on heart surgery per se today in the same way that I did four years ago when I was bringing heart surgeons into, the, into Iraq for the very first time. And so I'm able to step back and say, you know what, I, I have vision, I have solutions, I have ideas, and I can actually apply those now to a different problem because I've actually done my job in many ways over here already. It's not to say heart surgery is finished. It's not to say we don't have work to do there. We do. It's going to be another five or ten year journey. But that, the, the onus of that responsibility has now been shifted from me to our heart surgery friends and partners. And so, so now we see these people in our streets. We see these women who have lost their husbands to mass killings. We see these children who have been separated from their parents. We see parents woefully and regretfully sending their children out to beg in the streets. And, and we can't any longer turn a blind eye to that. We can't say, this isn't really our issue today. Our issue is heart surgery. Instead, this is everyone's issue today. You, you cannot be in Iraq and this not be your issue. To try and do that would be the height of callousness and it, it would not be very Christian, to say the least. And so, so we decide in that moment that we are going to somehow figure out how to respond to the needs of these people. And we had internal questions. We had internal debate, both at the board level and the staff level. We had donors in on this conversation and donors brought concerns, some objected, you're a heart surgery organization. Stick to what you know. Well, the truth is we're not a heart surgery organization. What we really consider ourselves is a peacemaking organization in a lot of ways. Because none of the people on staff in, my, in our organization, the Preemptive Love Coalition, none of us actually are medical professionals. What we do well is we meet people and we tell stories and we handle finances, and we handle logistics, and we do management, and we do marketing, and we, we do those kinds of things really well. And we thought, we actually have the skills in our hands to raise a lot of money to help bless these people now who are living among us without clothes and without homes and without food. 
the heat of the summer, but even though it's hot now, winter's coming, and it's going to get a lot worse in a totally different kind of way here within a few months. And so we started responding to those needs, and friends like you gave, and Redemption has been generous, and so on and so forth, and we've had the resources in our hands now. If you don't mind pulling up that Instagram feed, maybe we can just show a few of the photos of what we've been up to over the last uh, couple of months, but we've been able to help about 2,300 people since ISIS came in, and um, this is just the only way I knew how to show some of the most contemporary things that are going on kind of day-to-day with our team in Iraq, but we're giving out coats and blankets now. We've helped 2,300 people, given about $420,000 to help this, this situation over the last couple of months, and and we're not done by any stretch. We're really just getting started. Um, we're now starting to invest in small businesses for women who, who maybe didn't work in a previous era of their life. They would have been homemakers, but Iraqi people aren't looking for handouts. They're not, I mean, they're, they're willing to work to rebuild their lives. They just need some help right now. And so we're, we're giving $1,000 grants to, to women and to men to go start bakeries and to go start sewing businesses and things like that. So there's a number of things that we're doing now across that space to, to respond to the suffering of people around us. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, Jim, for you. So as a pastor, I know that when we talk about something like this, we have uh, this kind of topic come up. I'm going to get, I'll probably get at least one uh, email or phone call or conversation on Sunday of somebody saying, okay, so I know we should love people, heart surgeries, love, we got to do that. But what about evangelism? Like, are we, we're supposed to tell people about the gospel. So I'm going to get one of those or two maybe. You're going to get a lot. So I'm going to save you some emails right now and just set you up with that question. Yeah. What, what do you do with evangelism, speaking the gospel? Don't people need to be saved? Heart surgeries, but they still die. What about their souls go to heaven? Yeah. Got it. Um, I, I love the question. I think it's a really important one, and this is an important topic. Um, just to, to frame it with a, with a, a little story. I'm involved with a lot of, of dialogue with Muslim leaders, um, and we've taken some to uh, a number of churches where we've, we've done what we call multi-faith dialogue where, versus interfaith dialogue. Now, don't get caught up in the terms, but really what happens in these dialogue situations is that everyone comes to the table with the agreement of, it's okay for me want you to believe what I believe, and it's okay for us to disagree on what we believe, but we're coming to the table as neighbors and, uh, and going to figure out how to flourish as neighbors together. Now, there's a story with that. We were in one of these meetings once, and there was a guy who looked over to us. There were a bunch of different perspectives in the room. And one of the, one of the local imams here um, was at the table, and this guy leaned over to me, and he looked at me and says, Jim, I know you're one of the, the evangelicals, so I've, and, and I know you want to convert people, and you want to tell them about Jesus, so I got a question I'm going to ask for you. He's, then he goes on to say, if what, what Gandhi said about, he quotes Gandhi, he said, there would be peace in India if Muslim uh, families adopted Hindu children and raised them as Hindus, and, and Hindu families adopted Muslims and raised them as Muslims. Then he looks at me and he says, if the imam's child dies tonight, or if he dies tonight, would you adopt his child and raise him as a Muslim or would you try to convert him? 
right? So he puts me in this big conundrum because it's not just a theoretical question. Now what's happening is it's actually the imam, it's actually his kid, and you've got to start off this peacemaking meeting by, like, contradicting Gandhi, right? So, uh, yeah. He pulled so, the Gandhi card. He pulled the Gandhi card on me, right? So what happens is I'm about to go into it, and I'm about to say, yeah, I believe that people need to hear about Jesus, and, you know, that is one of the ways in which you love. But before I can even get into it, the imam says, stop. Here's what we know. I want Jim to believe what I believe. Jim wants me to believe what he believes. Let's work on this project together. And if one of us converts along the way, we'll figure it out. And I really love that attitude. And actually, around here in, the, in Phoenix, there are a number of imams and a number of Christians who are coming together and saying, we're going to partner together. But we, we don't have to say that we believe all of the same things, and we can even try to convert each other along the way. So we're driving around, and we're sh- they're evangelizing me. I'm evangelizing them, and, you know, we're, we're having meals together, and it's all on the table. But at the end of the day, we deeply love each other. We are not a project to one another. We are neighbors. We are not just a, a, a notch on a belt, a, a point that you can score and bring back to your community. And that's really what um, I I love about what what Jeremy was saying, is that love is actually the central theme. Love is the central theme. But I do believe sharing the gospel and and wanting people to know Jesus is an act of love, and it has to go in that order. Love is supreme. Jesus said that was the great commandment. And one of the ways we do that is by putting Jesus forward and saying, here's who he is. I love you, and I want you to know him. Very good. All right, we have about 15 minutes for for some questions, so if we want to throw questions up there as we're waiting for the first question to come up, I have one and one more for you, Jeremy. Do you dress this cool when you live in Iraq? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I was mesmerized. I have no fashion sense. I thought it was really cool. All right. Uh, what has been the most effective way you've taught empathy to those who are in, entrenched in their, in their ideologies? Well, I, I guess I would, uh, I don't know, part of me thinks my, my first 30 minutes must not have gone very well. Because um, I think that, I think that, I don't, I, I don't know how to, I guess I, I understand the question. I don't, I don't see it as a strategy, I guess, in a sense. I don't, I don't see it as a, a way. It, it's, more, it's not a way of doing something as much as it's about a way of being. Uh, I think part of maybe what I was trying to communicate at the, the very first half, the, the whole fists up conversation, is that that was, for me at least, I don't mean to to say something negative about all strategies or all approaches. But for me, the way I lived out of that space, that, that posture for me, was, was about trying to find the right way to fix somebody, trying to find the right words, trying to find the right hook or the right methodology to change someone from who they were to who I wanted them to be. And, and I think that what, we've, what happened when I got my fist down and when there was some sense of, an icy cage around my heart melting was that 
it became more about being. It became more about a, a posture of how I lived my life and how I embraced those around me. And, and the way, if there's a way, it's the embrace. It's, it's, it's moving from fists up to arms wide. It's, it's moving into a, a posture of wanting to embrace those around you. Well, do you embrace their sin? Well, do you embrace their ideology? Yeah, you do. You absolutely embrace their sin. You absolutely embrace their ideology. I don't know a more effective way than to embrace, than to love. I mean, I don't know a better way. I understand the heart of the question, and I just don't know how to answer it because I'm not a very good strategist. That's really what it boils down to. I have big ideas. I have big vision. But I don't know that I'm a very good strategist when it comes down to saying, well, how do we, how do we love our neighbors better? I, I don't know. Just go love your neighbors. I'm so sick of the question that I get hung up on sometimes. Well, what does that actually look like? I don't know. Go do it and tell me what it looks like. You know, I, I, I'm not good at, I'm not, I don't know if I'm good at this. I don't know that I, I don't know Phoenix better than you do. You know Phoenix better than I do. So let's go try. And you have permission to fail. You know, I think we get hung up just like I did in that hotel. Well, what if I fail? What are they going to think about me? What if I walk across the street to the mosque and screw it all up? What if I try and say, salam alaikum, and I say, like, salami and tuna? You know, like, I mean, what, what's going to happen if my tongue gets twisted and I, and I offend them? I don't go offend them. And then reconcile. And then say, I'm sorry. And then laugh at yourself and point to your big, bright yellow socks. And, you know, just be a person and just go try. I think not taking ourselves too seriously, maybe, and offering a lot of embrace, that's, that's probably one of the ways that, or the way, the posture that we try and live out of. I think it's got to be difficult with, because when you see ideologies, that looks like somebody else with their fists yeah, up. Sure. So you're going to embrace someone with their fists up. I, just, I think one thing that you did, Jeremy, even in how you did this talk tonight, I think was, so for us, there's, got, there's probably some people here who are coming in with some ideologies maybe against Islamic people, Muslims. And so, but in, for you, instead of coming fists up and saying, okay, so some of you are Islamophobes, some of you guys this, that, and don't even love Jesus because of the way you're loving other people, instead of doing that, you told a story and told your story and showed that. And so I think story's got to be a huge part of this too. So, like this, yeah. Anything you want to add, Jim? Nope. Uh, what do you do to combat deep sentiments of sadness living in such a hostile environment? I, well, for one, I wear brightly colored socks because when you, when you get sad and you start putting your head to the ground and moping and staring at your own navel, then one of the things you're prone to see is your bright yellow socks and, and your multicolored striped socks. And it's really hard to be upset wearing digs like this. And so I, I highly recommend that more people take a risk on the, the socks. Um, I... I play music. Um, specifically, I've found that the ukulele is another instrument with which you cannot have a bad day. You truly can't. I, I, I'm good at playing guitar in minor tones, and I, I'm good at playing, like, remorseful, mopey, bluesy, you know, guitar songs. But when I pick up a ukulele, I only know how to sound like Hawaii. And so, like... <laughs> Like music and stuff like that are, are other 
truly ways, true ways that we combat deep sentiments of sadness. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend the socks, but um, no, I would. That's more of a Benjamin thing, wearing the socks like that. And speaking of Benjamin, he, he says we have lots of questions, just so this is exciting. So go ahead and go with the next one. Uh, I guess, no guess to say that you've got a unique perspective living in Iraq. From your experiences, what facet of God's character have you come to love most? The, the God who steps out of all the safety and grandeur and glory of glory. And, and for those who are most against him and most rebellious, lays himself on the line and doesn't get hung up on questions about how far is too far, and doesn't get hung up on questions about, well, at what point do you decide that it's time to leave, and at what point is, you know, do, do you just need to pull out, but, but the God who goes all the way till death on a cross. I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that I will live up to that sort of godlike quality, but, but it's so inspiring and, and so exciting, and, and it, it calls me forth, and it calls our family forth and our team forth to be so much more than we actually are. This is not a small God. This is not a small faith. This is something that is so much bigger than just playing church, you know, and going through the, the, um, the motions of daily religiosity. That Whatever we call that God-like quality, the God who loves his enemies all the way to death, crosses enemy borders and goes behind the front lines, I, it's that quality, I think, that I, I most love. Just as a quick follow-up question, tell us where you got the name preemptive love, because I think it somehow relates. Yeah, I mean, preemptive love comes out of some of those, those mottos that I was talking about earlier. And, I mean, obviously, if, if you're old enough to remember, you remember some of the rhetoric surrounding the decision to go into Iraq. Rhetoric that said, we don't want to see the smoking plume of smoke. We don't want to see the, you know, the, the smoking gun and it'll be too late for us. Basically, we have to go get them before they can get us. It's not wise to wait for a guy like Saddam Hussein, the butcher of Baghdad. These words, these appellations that were the ultimate othering of this man made in God's image. Saddam Hussein, made in God's image, loved by God. The ultimate vilification of him, to call him the butcher of Baghdad, and to say, we have to go get him before he can get us. And so to paint this guy this way, and to paint his people this way, and to diminish them in many ways, some of them from being people, so that they were more easy for us to think about killing. And so we acted in this language, in this rhetoric, in this ideology of preemptive war. We have to protect our own, and to do that, if we have to get you before you've actually done anything against us, then so be it. And so we were wrestling with these things and wrestling with those mottos that I've already talked about. And I, uh, at that time in Iraq and, and the days leading up to our move to Iraq, was listening to the music of a friend, a guy named Derek Webb, an album called Mockingbird. And he was asking these similar questions. He was singing things like, how can I kill the one I'm supposed to love. My enemies are men like me. 
and so on and so forth. Song after song asked these heart-piercing questions, and we just said, we don't want to be a part of the coalition of the willing that, that so flippantly, it seemed, would lie, subvert the truth, and introduce misinformation so that we could be have the permission to go get them before they got us. Instead, we wanted to not be the preemptive war coalition. We wanted to be a part of the preemptive love coalition. That's, and to say, to, I, mean, I guess I should say, that is rooted in Romans 5. That, that is rooted in 1 John 4, where it's not that we loved first. It's not that I came up with any of this. It's not that these clever turns of phrase mean anything. It's that God first loved us and laid down his life for us. And, you know, to be honest, I question whether that's true a lot of days of the week. I question whether we've got this whole Jesus thing right. I, I question if we're just reading history wrong. I question if the Bible is trustworthy. I, I have my doubts. I have my frustrations. I have my fears about this faith that I've inherited. And I, I don't think there's enough people on our stages sometimes confessing that. I think sometimes it's just a lot easier to keep the veneer and not put yourself out there and say, you know, I, I have questions about the Bible. So let me just say I have a lot of questions about the Bible, but I so desperately want this story to be right. I so desperately want this story of the God who steps into our pain and loves us all the way to death to be true. And so I keep hanging my hope on it every day, even though sometimes I really, really doubt it. Jeremy, how would you love Muslims if you lived here in Tempe or Phoenix? I would hope that I would love Muslims like Jim does. If you don't know Jim, if you haven't sat with Jim, if you hadn't heard some of Jim's stories and, and Redemption Tempe's stories at least about how they are seeking to love Muslims around them, I would highly, highly commend them to you. I would seek to learn from Jim if I moved back to America and wanted to love my Muslim neighbors. Uh, anyone can answer this? As Christians living in America, is it wrong to be fearful of ISIS? It is always wrong to be fear-filled. It is never necessarily inherently wrong to be afraid. There's a place for fear. Just don't let it fill you. Don't be fearful. Don't be filled by fear. There, there is cause to be afraid. There, is, there are reasonable people who have good ideas and insights and wisdom and intel as to why there is a place to be afraid of ISIS and what they seek to commit in terms of violence against individuals and systems and the entire government of America. Absolutely, there is reason to be afraid if we need to use those, that, that framing of it. But fight with everything you've got as an individual and as communities and as the church to never be fear-filled. Be hope-filled as best you can. Be love-filled, but don't be fear-filled. That's, it's it's going to be a daily struggle for us, and it's not just the likes of ISIS. It's, it's the question of homosexuality and gender identity, and it's the question of race relations, and all these things threaten and encroach upon us. Ebola this week, and then Ebola's totally gone and out of the news next week. I mean, 
where did Ebola go? Right? But for a week, we were fear-filled about Ebola, some of us. Don't be fear-filled. But it's okay, I think. It's reasonable for many, many issues to be afraid. Fear is not evil. The, the dialectic between fear and love that we, that we read in, in 1 John, I, I think we can press that too hard. It, it's, not that, it's not that perfect love drives out fear and then, therefore, fear has absolutely no place in our life. I want very much for my children to be afraid of walking out on the interstate. I want my children to be afraid of touching the stove and burning the flesh off their hands. I, there's a place for fear. But don't let it fill you. Do you have anything, Jim? Um, the only thing that I would also add is um, fear, how would I put it? I think it's important to know who's profiting off of your fear. That's all I'm going to say. Drops the mic. One, <laughs> one last question, and then, uh, and then we're going to do one last thing to wrap it up. So do you have any stories of Iraqi Christians loving Jesus in Iraq? Yes. There was an amazing group of people that approached us um, and said, we are, fine. We, are, we are followers of Jesus. And we didn't always used to be followers of Jesus, but, but we're followers of Jesus now. And we're finding that our streets are filling up and our town is filling up with Muslims, our brothers, our friends, our cousin Muslims who are being displaced and made to be on the run from ISIS. And we would really like if you could help us to have some resources to love our Muslim neighbors. You know us. You know we're relatively poor. You know we just kind of have enough to scrape by for our family. We don't have enough to, to serve thousands of people around us who are coming into our city on the run from ISIS. But if you would get us the resources that we need, we would be so honored and so privileged to not do like many of the historic Christian communities are doing and only love and give aid to the historic Christian communities and continue to perpetuate the very tribalism and sectarianism that besets Iraq, but we, having come from that tribe and come into this tribe, would be so thrilled to take your resources and go back to that tribe and love them. And so we did. We took your money from Missio Day. And we gave them what they needed, and they went back, and they, they started loving their Muslim neighbors in a way that is, to, to the networks and the stories that we're hearing, completely unprecedented among many of the historic Christian communities that continue to command the lion's share of media coverage when we talk about persecution in Iraq. That's a whole other topic, but... But suffice it to say that there, there are some groups out there who are not so myopically fixated on their own tribe, and we've been really privileged to work with them to do enemy love, so to speak. And, and you know, what they find and what turns out is that they're not actually enemies after all in many, many cases. So, yeah, I, I think there's a, some stories like that. Real quick before you uh, send us, um, I forgot to talk about the book. 
Um, so we, this book is in the back. Jeremy's brought a lot of them. I would highly recommend you, you reading it. It is a fantastic book. Um, I've got a standing, I've got an open invitation that anyone who reads the book and is willing to sit down with me and talk about it, I will make you, I will personally make you some hummus. So, uh, so that is an open offer there. Jeremy, do you want to just tell us how we're going to do the book process in the back? Yeah, if you can go to that slide, uh, I'd like to show this just by way of kind of telling a story of how we do this. If, if you were a parent and your child was born with one of these life-threatening heart surgeries that I've been talking about, to go to the, the Phoenix Children's Hospital over here, you would be looking at probably $50,000 to get in the door and try and help your child. It would, it would cost you that much to go through some of the early testing and get them the surgery that they needed. And that surgery, would it's a great hospital, and they would likely save your child's life. Now, when we started doing this process, we started helping these kids in Iraq, we were able to subsidize that cost and get it way down to a much more charitable price by working with some goodwill doctors in Israel, in Turkey, and places like that. And so these doctors were able to get that $50,000 American price down to this next slide, which is just $10,000. So we were getting, you know, five surgeries for the price of what it would have cost us to bring kids or what it would cost you to get your child a surgery here in America. Now, after all these years of doing this and working with the likes of the First Lady and the Vice President and having the Iraqi government push more and more and more money into this program, we were able to provide a heart surgery for a child in Iraq right now for just $250. I'm glad you think that's a good price. That, I agree. And so what we would love, love, love to see happen tonight, we'd love to give you this book. The, the people of Iraq have taught us a lot of generosity. For all we've done for them, they've done so, so much for us. They've welcomed us into their homes. They provide us with food and shelter and kindness and guidance. And they have just taught us how to actually be open-handed, generous people. So we're learning from them. We're following their lead. They give gifts all the time when you come into their homes. And so we're learning to go places and give gifts as well. When they come to our homes, they give gifts. And so now that we've come to your home tonight, we come with a gift. And so the book is a gift for you. If you don't already have one, please, one family, one per family, feel free to pick up a book on the way out. It's our gift to you. They're already paid for. God bless you. Read it. Enjoy it. Tweet about it. Be changed. If, in addition to taking this free gift, you would be willing to give a gift to a child in Iraq tonight, we would be extremely grateful, and you would help us continue our work, saving lives, providing warmth for winter, providing shelter, providing all these things that we're trying to do nationwide right now. So if you can't give the full $250, great. Give what you can. If you can afford to give $1,000 and help us pay for four kids to get heart surgery, great, do that. But, but the book is free, but we would love for you to consider being generous to a child in Iraq tonight as well. And just as a reminder to those at Redemption Tempe, part of our Advent offering is going to see how many of those surgeries we can help fund together. So you want to wrap us up, Chris? Great. Uh, here's what I want you to do. It would be a terrible thing if you heard some great information right now and then you come back in January to the first Wednesday. Uh, which is it on the first Wednesday? It's going to be in February. So in February. So now you've got two months and you come back and then you hear another great thing then. 
Uh, but we want to do something with this, or at least start thinking about this. So here's what I want you to do is back around your tables or with some people around you. Before you go, I need you to do something. I need you to brainstorm what are five things that we could do to love our global neighbor. So from where we're at, what are five things we could do? And this is brainstorming. So no idea is a bad idea. You can think of crazy ideas where we're under the umbrella of grace. We're in the trust tree. And so you're safe. But what I need you to do is to think about what are some different, what are five ideas, five ideas that you could do to love, that you could actually do to love your global neighbor. Write out those five ideas. Uh, get, get the, make sure you get five. And then if you could text, we'll put the text uh, slide back up here. If you could text the best one in, uh, and we, we just wanted to compile a list of some different ideas. Text the best one in, and, uh, and then if, you, if you're up for it, if just with your group, if you guys could pray, and then you'll be, you're dismissed. So uh, five ideas, text the best one in, no idea is a bad idea, pray, and you're dismissed. Uh, parents, uh, it's after 8 o'clock, and so to relieve the child care workers, we got to go get our kids. Um, but before you go, just real quick, throw one idea down for your table, and then you can leave. So ready? One idea for parents, and then go get your kids. Everybody else, get five ideas. Text one in, pray, go.